0: Everyone we meet initially in life is a stranger. Um, That includes my students. When they walk in the door, um, I know their name, they know my name. I might know a little bit of background on their SAT or ACT scores, but that's it. Um, But very, very few of my students um, ever leave feeling like a stranger. It's, it's a scary thing
1: to welcome in a stranger. Like, you don't know what could happen. You don't know what they're about, right? But I always think of that part in the Bible that says that when you entertain someone who you don't know, you could be welcoming an angel in. And when we think about it that way, then our inhibitions come down. And I just know that's what God wants me to do. I've always been drawn to the stranger. I'm intrigued by people who um, I don't know, who are different from me, who have lived a different kind of life, and I seek to to know them deeply. Um, I think it's part of what made the job a little bit easier for me because I love engaging strangers.
0: You know, I think learning to love people that are strange to you Uh, helps, uh, you know, helps increase awareness of differences. I I think it helps increase our ability to uh, have diversity of thought, diversity of people. It, It fosters a sense of inclusiveness and it actually helps diverse teams and diverse peoples feel a little bit more connected and coherent. Leaders can have blind spots, so if you have a stranger that comes to you um, maybe looking at things differently than you do because they have a different background, uh, that may be God's way of pointing out, out that blind spot that could make you a better person if you address it. I work with many factories and suppliers. That's my job. Initially, they're strangers to me, but once i built that relationship with them, um, they're no longer strangers. And in my work experience, honestly, I have built many good relationships. I always treat every individual as someone God had created and being able to love them. Um, I, I have a uh, policy. <laughs> policy I have a policy and it's basically just I never I never turn down a meeting you know like I just always I always take a meeting it's interesting because hospitality you know it's one of those things that you know it kind of one of those things that comes back to you you know it's like taking you know that policy works for me just as well as it does for those who who are asking meetings of me what's it gonna you know it costs you a half an hour and you know who knows? This might be somebody you might want to recruit one day. Um, we've always got strangers in our in our in our facility because we have a flexible labor force. In that we bring in people from the outside. We'll bring people in to work on a large rollout of a, a national rollout on a monthly basis for Duncan Brands, let's say, which is a, one of our largest customers. And what we find through those folks is. You find these people that are that are working from job to job, temporary labor. And in there, you, you sit and listen to these folks and you listen to their stories. Uh, they'll take two, three buses just to get to work for 7 a.m. in the morning. And you start to develop relationships with some of them on a because they, you see them time and time again. And ultimately, your desire is to hopefully to hire these folks um, to make them permanent. And in a lot of cases, these, these folks have been in jail, um, have been in, our, um, in a halfway house and, and are working part-time for us and a lot of the strangers over time end up becoming impermanent employees um, And so uh, it's uh, it's a better we're better for it. Our company is better for it uh, to have these folks.
1: Some of you heard me tell uh, about th- how, our oldest son caleb uh, played college football uh, i 've told the story a time or two for different reasons. Um, let me just say that part of what was interesting about him playing college football is that he didn 't play football until he was a junior in high school uh, he was a, He was a great athlete, but it was all about baseball and basketball but he uh had a coach talk him into going out for the team as a junior in high school. uh, Yeah, as a junior in high school. The good news is that he started his very first game both ways. The bad news is the team was terrible, and they lost every game that year. And he decided to go back out his senior year, and lo and behold, if the team wasn't fantastic that year. West Orange High School had its best season in its history, and... um, where he had been completely off college coaches' radars, no one had any idea who he was. As he was finishing his senior year, all of a sudden he started getting a lot of attention. And um, the, from a big life pr- perspective, the best opportunity uh, was the interest that Yale University was showing in his talents as a football player and a, an a, uh, academic. So. The problem was that they were, they'd long filled most of the slots on their team, and it was very unlikely that this kid from West Orange would really have a viable chance to fill one of those last slots. But nonetheless, they sent the recruiter to meet him uh, after the season was over, and um, we invited the cr- recruiter to come to our house for dinner. And so while the recruiter was watching Caleb play basketball at West Orange, high school and talking to his coaches, Sharon was at home, my wife, preparing an epic meal. By the time that the recruiter and and Caleb showed up uh, from Caleb's basketball practice and so on, uh, Martha Stewart would have envied the condition of our home. Uh, The table uh, could have made uh, uh, any imaginable hospitality magazine cover. And uh, the, the meal was so good that the Cooking Channel could have launched a new channel, a new show called How to Win a Recruiter's Heart Through His Stomach. I mean, really, my mouth's watering. It was amazing. Well, another thing that's kind of interesting about that night is that Christian, our youngest son, who all of you know, uh, who played college football, by the way, uh, he was at basketball practice and uh, he was practicing with his traveling basketball team. Well, the coach of his traveling basketball team was Governor Richard Cody, who has made a, a tradition over many years of taking a group of fifth grade kids and coaching them through high school AAU, and both Caleb and Christian had that experience. Christian was at basketball practice. We told him to please have another parent bring him home, join us late for dinner. We're sitting at the dinner table. There's a knock at the door, which was odd because Christian, of course, your t- teenage son would never have knocked. Um, and so I go to the door, and standing at the door is Christian and Governor Cody. And uh, this was odd because Governor Cody had, had, though he'd been to our home to drop the kids off here or there, he'd, he'd never walked in the house. But I basically cracked the door open, and he opened the door and came walking in like he, he ate dinner there every night. He sat at, the, at an empty chair at the dinner table, and he started serving himself, really, like this is what we always do around here. And he starts talking Caleb up to this Yale recruiter. Uh, he heard from Christian. The recruiter was there. He wanted to make an impression. <laughs> and he shows up, and it was a very, very interesting meal. Well, Caleb gets invited. To a, an official visit, he gets made an offer. He goes to Yale. He plays football. The rest is history. But here's the thing that strikes me in the context of this series. Other than the fact that's just a pretty good story, um, other than that, here's the thing that strikes me. It's that when I when I saw this this recruiter months later, who I'd had essentially that one real significant interaction with, there was only one thing that he wanted to talk about. Of all the things he could have talked about. What he wanted to talk about was that my wife had cooked the best dinner that he had ever experienced on a home visit as a college recruiter. And I thought, well, that's nice. He's being complimentary and so on and so forth. I meet this guy's wife sometime later. She didn't know me. She didn't really, wasn't all that aware of Caleb until she heard that we were from West Orange, et cetera. And she said, oh, my husband said that your wife fixed the best meal that he has ever had on a recruiting visit. And so here's the deal. Don't tell Caleb this. Please don't tell Caleb this. Don't tell his high school coaches who did such a great job with him this. Certainly don't tell Governor Cody this. But Caleb got into Yale because of his mother's hospitality. (laughs) That meal she prepared changed his life forever. Let's say it like this to introduce today's topic. Never underestimate the power of the table. Never underestimate the power of the table. I believe, and I truly believe this, that God uses the table for transformation. Sociologist Cody Dellastrati explored the most recent scientific literature for Atlantic Monthly regarding the importance of the family dinner table and discovered that the single most important element in raising kids who are drug-free, healthy, intelligent, kind human beings is frequent family dinners. The most important predictor of success for elementary-aged children is frequent family dinners. The primary factor in shaping vocabulary for younger children is frequent family dinners. The key variable associated most with a lower incidence of depressive and suicidal thoughts among 11 to 18 year olds is frequent family dinners. Never underestimate the power of the table. There is something quasi-sacramental about the table a sacrament of course is a physical thing in which God or something of God is seen and is present without question some of the most sacred moments of my life I would say even most meaningful God moments of my life have been experienced sitting at the dinner table with my wife and kids of lesser importance but still extremely significant. I've had many experiences over the years, sitting with members of my team, when something of God and eternity broke into our bread breaking. I've seen conference tables in hospitable environments become the Lord's table, a means of grace, something God used to do something good and beautiful. As New Testament scholar N.T. Wright wrote, when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. See, I encourage, and I spent some time with this last Sunday, I encourage leaders to see hospitality as formative, as something uniquely important that God can use. That just as surely as the dinner table is essential for a family to shape a child, so any leader should see the potential of hospitality to shape people's lives and help them grow and flourish and move an organization's mission forward. Michael Frost intimates that there are certain environments where the imagined veil that separates heaven from earth is thin. I love this imagery. Here's how he wrote about it. He said, the Celts speak of thin places. Where the fabric that separates heaven and earth is so thin, it becomes almost translucent. And one is able to encounter the joy and peace of heaven I like the way theologian Barry Jones responded to what Frost said about the veil between heaven and earth becoming thin. He said, for me, the veil is thin when I'm seated at the table with good food and cherished friends. If you're fortunate, you, like me, have experienced those very special moments where it didn't seem to be a sacred occasion, but because of who you sat at table with, In the midst of your bread breaking, or perhaps in the midst of some meeting in a hospitable environment, the veil between heaven and earth was thin and something from God broke in. Not because someone said a prayer, perhaps, not because someone offered even a scripture, but just in that fellowship, something divine occurred. I've experienced it many, many times. I want all of us to see the mystical dynamic of the table as a metaphor for any environment of welcome and hospitality. I want us to see the table as a metaphor for any environment that we create where part of the result of our hospitality is that the veil is thin, if you please, and God can break in and do something transformative in that setting. Now, this series we're in is based, as most of you are very aware, on my new book, The Hospitable Leader, Create Environments Where People and Dreams Flourish. And in The Hospitable Leader, I try to look at what made Jesus inarguably the most successful leader in the history of the world. And again, everywhere I look, I see Jesus leading in a hospitable context. It's stunning, for instance, how often Jesus exercised influence that brought some type of transformative result in the context of a meal. From the wedding at Cana where he turned the water into wine, where he, we're told in John's gospel, showed his glory for the first time and people believed in him for the first time at that wedding banquet, from there to his frequent attendance at dinner parties, to The Last Supper, which we talked about last week, to his post-resurrection reconciliation breakfast with Simon Peter, and so on. Again and again and again, Jesus is exercising influence in some hospitable context. Now, this isn't just about a physical hospitality, as I taught last week. I spent some time last week showing how the Last Supper is a model of how Jesus paid attention to the physical environment, the spiritual environment, the emotional environment, the attitudinal environment, and the communicative environment. The point is, though, that we can lead in a way where we intentionally create environments of welcome where the veil if you please, between heaven and earth is thin and transformative things can happen in that space. Now, let me add another layer to all of that. It's to say that we should never underestimate the power of the table, but just as assuredly, we should never underestimate the power of who is at the table. And this is what I wanna focus my time on today. We should never underestimate the power of who is at the table. It's important to note who Jesus sat at the table with. And to remove any question, I'll go ahead and say that Jesus would sit at the table with anybody and everybody. This was clearly a key part of his leadership success. This was clearly part of how he effectively influenced an ever-expanding diversity of people. You might remember that that the definition I offer of hospitable leadership is that a hospitable leader creates environments of welcome where moral leadership can more effectively influence an ever-expanding diversity of people. This is about going beyond veil-is-thin moments with our friends and family. This is about going beyond veil-is-thin moments with people who we are naturally, for whatever reason, comfortable with. Folks with similar backgrounds, folks with similar taste, folks with similar views, folks with similar uh, uh, goals, folks with similar values. It's easy to sit at table with the family at Thanksgiving and to have veil-is-thin moments where somehow, without necessarily even talking explicitly about God, you sense his presence there. It's another thing to sit at the table with folks you wouldn't invite to Thanksgiving. And I'm not talking about your crazy uncle. I'm talking about people who are in some way other than you who wouldn't typically be in your circle of family or friends. I'm talking about that kind of person. And what I want to talk a little bit about today is how that a hospitable leader is intentional about creating environments of welcome where where we can practice moral influence with an ever-expanding diversity of people. Jesus ate with all kinds of people, but central to his leadership success is that he welcomed people totally other than he was. He welcomed people as opposite as he was, as opposite could be. Now, let me talk about this in two ways, and let me just check on something. Are you folks, are you still awake? No. Psst, 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 All right, nudge your neighbor. This could get interesting, but I have to move through some of this early stuff quickly to get to the, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of making my point, sharpening my point, but in a few minutes, I'm going to stab you with it, okay? So h- hang in there. Be awake for the stabbing. All right, what was I talking about? Jesus welcomed people who were other than he was in, in, in a couple ways. Let, let's let's kind of put it in two different groupings. First of all, he welcomed people who were similar to him in values, let's say, um, but who had never been welcomed before. The classic example of this, I talk about this quite a bit in the book, is he, he welcomed women into his circle in a way that women had never been welcomed before. And he did that because it was the right thing to do. He also, as a smart leader, doubled the number of people who would join him in his mission, because he understood, if you please, that an empty seat at the table is a missed opportunity. If somebody's not at the table with you, they're not going to get on mission with you. And so a wise leader is just smart about making sure that we're bringing everybody we can in to get involved in what we're doing. So anyway, there's that category of person where he's welcoming people. Of course, everybody was completely other than he was in one sense. But there's this category of people similar to him. they just never been welcomed before. That's one thing. But then there's this other thing, and this is the thing that was most talked about regarding the table fellowship of Jesus in the New Testament. It's the fact that he welcomed sinners. Now, why is it such a big deal that Jesus welcomed sinners? Because Jesus was the only sinless person who ever lived. And so when I say that he welcomed someone completely other than him, I mean he welcomed somebody completely other than him. Now, everybody he welcomed were sinners in comparison to him, but he welcomed people who were well-reputed, well-known as sinners. Uh, prostitutes, um, he welcomed um, um, tax collectors, which, you know, doesn't sound like such a big deal today except, you know, I guess the IRS isn't all that popular, but tax collectors in that day, the best way to talk about it would be to say it was more like he was having, he was having dinner with Tony Soprano. All right, he, and, and he, he, was, he was known for this. He, he, he would have dinner with almost anybody, a religious leader who's criticizing him behind his back, Jesus would go to his house for dinner. Tony Soprano and his crew invite him over for dinner, he's showing up at dinner. The cast from Jersey Shore invites him to dinner, he's showing up at dinner. It's just, and he, and he did not, and this is very important, and this isn't my opinion. This is based on doing a lot of uh, reading and research around some of, of the scholarly work that's been done on this. He did not vet people before he decided whether or not he was going to sit at the table with them. He did not give them an application. He did not test their worldview. He did not ask them if they were going to change if he met with them. He just met with them. You want to have dinner with me? I'm showing up. And this became key to how he exercised the influence that changed the world because he brought a lot of people to himself and engaged them to, into his mission who would have never, ever been welcomed if he would have done a proper vetting of who these people were. Typical statement about the, about the table fellowship of Jesus is found in the uh, academic work of C.T. McMahon who said, the meal, one of humankind's most basic and common practices, was transformed by Jesus into an occasion of divine encounter. It was in the sharing of food and drink that he invited his companions to share in the grace of God. The quintessence of Jesus' redemptive mission was revealed in his eating with sinners, repentant and unrepentant alike. A guy named John LeClerc tried to sum up the gospel in a simple way, and he said the gospel can be explained like like this. Jesus ate good food with bad people. And this was the thing he was most criticized for is who he hung out with. But see he wasn't interested in a us for and no more kind of reality he was a leader and a leader is trying to find an ever expanding diversity of people in order to exercise positive influence with I like what Craig Blomberg said in his beautiful, again, scholarly work called Contagious Holiness. He wrote, Jesus' table fellowship with sinners reflects his willingness to associate with them at an intimate level, but not merely for the sake of defying convention or enjoying a party. The unifying theme that emerges is one that may be called Contagious Holiness. Jesus discloses not one instance of fearing contamination, whether moral or ritual, by associating with the wicked or impure. Rather, he believes that his purity can rub off on them, and he hopes that his magnanimity toward them will lead them to heed his calls to discipleship, which they frequently did, not always. Sometimes people didn't accept what he said, didn't do what he asked them to do. He loved them anyway, but his expectation was, if we can sit together around a table, I'm gonna change your life. I love it. Obviously, I'm yelling. Jesus was so confident in who he was. He was so at home in himself and in relationship with the Father that he expected to be the influencer in these hospitable settings, not the influence. He would welcome anyone, anytime, and expect that his truth would win the day. Which leads me to one of my uh, favorite and I think perhaps most important uh, important understandings of hospitable leadership. Many of you have heard me teach about this before. I, this is included in the book in a little more detail, but let me say it quickly. It's where the writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament, those first century Jewish believers of Jesus, which actually represented most of the early Christian church, he wrote to the Hebrews and he said, first of all, Hebrews 13:1, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. There's a Greek word known to you that's translated brotherly love there, and that Greek word is Philadelphia. So he's going to start in a place called Philadelphia, brotherly love. He says, if you please start there, love each other, take care of Philadelphia. I like to refer to that as home. But then in verse 2 he says, and, oh, don't forget, to be hospitable to strangers because when you're hospitable to a stranger, you may be entertaining an angel unaware. There's a Greek word, perhaps not known to you, that's translated uh, uh, hospitality to strangers, or to love a stranger, or to entertain a stranger, and that Greek word is philoxenia. Philoxenia literally means to love a stranger. Show hospitality to a stranger. Entertain a stranger. So what he says is we're going to start in a place called Philadelphia and we're going to make sure that's taken care of and then we're going to move to another place called Philoxenia. We're going to make sure we're loving each other, but that's not the end of the story. We're going to have dinner together, but then we're going to have dinner with people who we don't even know and who are strange in some way to us. Now, I think it's important to say that in order to properly care for a stranger that I, would, I believe that we have to take care of home. And by home, uh, I'm referring to any number of actualities, including the condition of our own soul, the care of our family, uh, the, and, and the physical space in which we live, our place of business, and care of our teammates and employees, and the community or nation in which we live. I think in order for us to do Philixenia well, we have to be good at Philadelphia, all right? We have to take care of home. But we just have to remember that Philadelphia is just a spot on the map on the way to Philixenia. Because it's in Philixenia that we have the ability now to experience a, a veil that's thin between heaven and earth with strangers, and find out that those strangers might be angels who were entertaining unaware. Now, it could be a literal angel. That's certainly possible. I've heard stories about such things. It could be a literal angel, but the word angel means messenger from God. I like to think about it like this. I've learned that when I show hospitality to people who are not like me, often those people become messengers of God to me. It expands my soul. They broaden my mind. They multiply my mission. They teach me and allow me to teach them. Strangers become angels if we'll show them hospitality. Now, a stranger for the purpose of this discussion is anyone who seems strange to you or to whom you may seem strange. This could be someone whose background, worldview, or lifestyle may seem strange to you. A stranger could also be someone who is from a different nation of origin or race or ethnicity. A stranger may be someone who is from a different socioeconomic or educational status than you are, or it may be someone, God forbid, this seems to be the most controversial thing anybody could say in today's world, it may be someone who has different political views. They may watch Fox, you may watch MSNBC, or vice versa. It's like, God help, how could I ever have a meal with someone who doesn't get their news from the same source? You're laughing uncomfortably because you know it's true, don't you? Or it may be somebody from a different faith experience. But what I have learned is that when I am willing to be like Jesus in welcoming people who are other than me, now in this case, not so, I'm holy and they're not. I'm just saying now, someone who's different than me in meaningful ways, When I sit at table, and I'm not talking necessarily about a literal table, you understand? I'm talking about when I create environments that welcome people who are not like me into my life, that oftentimes those people become the very people God uses to shape me in very important ways. We have to remember that all through Scripture, God lets it be known that he loves the stranger. Deuteronomy 10, the Lord your God loves the stranger. It's pretty explicit, isn't it? Giving him food and clothing, therefore love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. In the New Testament, Jesus said, when you take care of people unknown to you, you take care of me. I am the stranger that you invite in. Now listen, we, we must remember... We must remember that when we welcome the stranger, it expands and grows us. We must remember that when we welcome the stranger, it pleases God because he loves the stranger. And we must remember that when we welcome the stranger, we create the opportunity to influence the stranger if our influence is needed. Listen, you can only influence people you welcome. And I think this is one of the things that's going on in our culture where people completely miss this. People are not gonna listen to you yelling at them, tweeting at them, posting ugly things at them. And we have people trying to influence folks, but what they're doing is pushing them further and further away. I think it's time that we quit throwing rocks and start having dinner together and have civil conversations about any number of things. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that we don't have opinions that are valued. It doesn't mean that we don't have experiences that, that need to be spoken about. It doesn't mean that we don't have a truth that we need to share, small t. It just means, doesn't it make more sense, whoever it is that seems strange to you, that you discuss it over dinner rather than any other number of ways. And I'm getting loud and I'm telling you not to shout and I'm shouting, but I'm not shouting at you, I'm shouting with you. There isn't such a thing, is there? I think I'm expressing what you already believe to be true. If you didn't believe that to be true, you probably wouldn't be sitting in this room right now. You decide to do something that most people in this country do not do on any regular basis. You decide to do life with people who are strange to you. Because when you look around this room and you get in meaningful conversations and you sit in small groups and talk about real things, you find out that in this church there's every imaginable kind of View, thought, etc., 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 etc. But we have decided that we want to live in a town called Philoxenia. We want to live with strangers because those strangers become messengers of God to us, and hopefully by God's grace, we become messengers from God to them. Hey, listen, hospitality, Professor Christine Pohl said, is resistance to the way things are in the world today. It's sad to say this, but being kind, being civil, being loving, listening to someone else's views. Now listen, I have strong views. I intend to share my views when I'm in that kind of a situation, but I'm not gonna share them without listening. Hospitality, throwing flowers instead of Molotov cocktails is resistance to the way things are in this world. The climate of this world is so inhospitable. We need climate change. I'm not talking about fossil fuel right now. I'm talking about the physical, attitudinal, spiritual, emotional, communicative environment can be changed by people like you and me who refuse to act like the rest of the world is acting right now. As Henry Nouwen said, we need to move from hostility to hospitality. All right, let me start trying to wrap this up. Pray for me. Pray for, maybe pray for yourself. And let me kind of layer onto all of this another thought. Are you guys okay? Are you mad at me? You don't know what I think? You think I'm crazy? You don't understand? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, you know, this is a push all kind of buttons kind of a message isn't it you know the person who's strange to you sometimes could be your spouse your teenage child right and, and just think about this so you the bible does say women are from venus and men are from mars i know the bible doesn't say that but i, I woke you up, i woke somebody up over here just wait wait a second just think, Just think. it's so obvious, forgive me for being so obvious, do, 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 do you want to have peace with your spouse? You don't stand in opposite rooms and yell, you sit down. If you're a guy, you're smart enough to take her out for a nice meal, candles preferred. With my wife, she's upset at me, which is a lot, it could be, <laughs> you know, Italian food, you know, creates a veil-less-thin moment, God breaks in, she decides she loves me again, Here. Have have, have some more biscotti, sweetheart. Now, uh, (laughs) that would be more fun to say if she was sitting there, she was there the first service. She said she can't stand to hear me preach anymore. (sighs) I'm kidding. Okay, I'm done. I'm done being silly. All right. Through Jesus, we've been radically reconciled not only to God, we've also been radically reconciled to each other. So, There's this whole idea of the stranger in this case. Maybe there's someone, we could say, you know, the tax collector sinner type person that Jesus met with. Someone who's, uh, maybe they don't even believe the same thing we believe about the gospel. Okay, but now let's talk about what happens when we believe and we enter the family of faith. All of us from all these different backgrounds become a part of the same family. We have the same spiritual DNA. We are born again and DNA'd with God, and joined to each other. And this has has radical implications. For instance, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he speaks about how through Jesus, God had torn down the dividing wall of hostility. I love that language. The dividing wall of hostility that had stood between Jews and Gentiles for several thousand years. And Paul said that God's purpose was to create one new humanity. Think about that. Now, let's just read the text, and then I'll make a couple comments and, 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 and try to finish my, my time here. Paul said, writing to Gentiles primarily, "'Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, "'excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners "'to the covenants of the promise without hope "'and without God in the world.'" He said basically, hey, you Gentiles, God used to have a covenant with the Jews that you weren't even included in. So first of all, you've been brought into that. You're no longer foreigners to that covenant. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, our shalom, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility." If you would please, guys, say, dividing wall of hostility. It's a mouthful. It means a lot, doesn't it? His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, Jew and Gentile, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. Now, one thing it's important to understand when, you, when, when, you're, when you're reading something that was written in the first century is to, to, to know the level of, of abs, absolute animus that existed between Jew and Gentile. I mean, if you had a, 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 a during that time, a, a Jewish young man wanted to marry a Jewish young woman. He was dead to his family. Um, and it, you know, it's worse than that. You look through the century, the, 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 the terrible things that have been done to Jewish people. You look at the attitude of Jewish people towards Gentiles in the first century. The bottom line is, here's the deal. Paul is essentially saying this. If God, through Jesus, can reconcile Jew and Gentile, any two people or any two people groups can be reconciled because God has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. And Paul paints this glorious picture of one new humanity. Name any people group and imagine all of us melded into one new humanity. I can't help as I was reading about that this week to remember one of the trips that I've taken to Rwanda, obviously post-genocide. It's been a little while since I've been there, but the last time I was there, I was traveling there along with Sharon and Christian. Christian was a just graduated from high school at that time. And I had been asked by an Anglican bishop, an evangelical Anglican bishop, to do a, a series of leadership meetings for uh, the pastors in his archdiocese, which spread all, uh, quite a geographical area and lots of churches. The Anglican church in Rwanda is very vibrant. One day uh, we were out, you know, I had the privilege to preach in his glorious cathedral, but most of the time we were out, like this particular day, out in a village so remote that many of the people traveled there all day long or all night long to hear me speak and many there were a number of them who had never seen a white man before. Now some of you have never seen a man this white before. <laughs> but that's not the point. We were out And after the day of teaching, we were invited to have dinner in the pastor's home. The pastor's home was a two-room hut. The food was cooked outside over a fire. Uh, The milk that we drank uh, in the the glorious Africa tea had just come out of the cow. Uh, The cow was milked in our presence to then be drunk anyway. And the food, which was uh, delicious and offered so generously by our host for whom this was an absolutely incredibly expensive endeavor to host us they were so pleased to host us the food was laid out in this in this in this in this hut with you know no window panes and you know dirt floors and the food was covered with flies and I'm a germaphobe, and I did what any of you would have done. I was so grateful for what they had offered. I didn't pay attention to the conditions. Uh, I don't particularly want to drink milk straight from a cow, right? I, 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 I don't enjoy the taste of flies. Uh, we, and, and, and I like to wash my hands. It was 30 of us washed our hands, all of us, in one bucket that we shared, but I did, again, what any of you would have done. I was grateful, and I jumped in. I was, they, I, I was the honored guest, so I was the first one. I piled my plate full of food, and I ate it, and I enjoyed it, it was fantastic. And I was kind of feeling kind of good about myself. Like, this is a heroic thing on my part that, that I didn't wash my hands 16 times in antibacterial soap. And Sharon was proud of me, and Christian was proud of me. Good job, Dad, you did a good job eating that meal. And then a little later, I found out who the hero was. Of course, it wasn't me, which is ridiculous. I I found out that that Tutsi bishop, you saw his picture back there, was the only Tutsi in a house full of Hutus. Now, you're going to have to remember your history here. Just a few years before, 800,000 Tutsis had been massacred by Hutus in the Rwandan genocide. And this was still relatively soon thereafter. We're in a remote village. This Tutsi bishop whose friends and families and so many people he knew had been killed by Hutus sat there at table with people whose people had killed his people just a few short years before. How in the world... Does this bishop sit there having a meal with these folks responsible for one of the most atrocious, not them specifically perhaps, but they're the Hutus, for one of the most atrocious acts of, well, genocide in history? There's only one answer for that. Through Jesus, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. People in our fallenness, in our sinfulness, Are always, it seems, finding out and figuring out new ways to build walls of hostility again. We're upset at those people. Maybe not because what they did specifically to us, but their people did this to my people. Or I'm upset at that person who 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 took advantage of me in a business deal and and uh, I just I can't talk, I can't just can't see them anymore. A dividing wall of hostility is put up. I'm I'm upset at my son or daughter who hasn't conducted themselves the way that I think, and I don't know if I can, a dividing wall of hostility is put up, but we have to see the vision of Jesus. The vision of Jesus is if Jew and Gentile can reconcile and have peace, if Hutu and Tutsi can reconcile and have peace, you can reconcile and have peace with anybody in this world and with any group of people in this world because through Jesus, not through people, a lot of times people don't deserve it, but through Jesus, dividing walls of hostility have been torn down and we represent his vision of one new humanity. It makes it pretty silly to not want to be in a church with people of another race, I hear tell there are folks like that in this world. It's hard to imagine, but it makes it seem pretty silly, doesn't it? Or to be in a small group with people who have different political views or to not want to fellowship with other Christians who hold different positions on certain doctrines. There's this great vision in Isaiah of the feast that launches the coming age. It's where Isaiah said the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. When we love each other, guys, when we sit at table together, whatever that looks like, we bring that future vision into present reality. And when he has prepared a feast for all peoples, is there someone at that table that you you can't imagine being there who believes in Jesus? That was an awkwardly constructed sentence, but do you understand? If someone believes in Jesus, they're part of the all peoples who are going to be sitting there at that great feast. We might as well learn to feast with all peoples now.